Welcome to episode 21 of Back to the Futures, the official podcast of the Futures Collegiate Baseball League, presented by ChangeUp. I'm Matt Satilli. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Owen Shadrick. It's a pleasure to see you, sir. We got a couple different backgrounds going. That's not our typical setup, but it's good to see you. How are you? I'm good, Matt. Just got done here in Lynn. I'm actually live in the North Shore Navigators press box. It was a great game, but we'll get to that. Yeah, we will. I am uh, at an off-site location. There was a bit of a storm yesterday on Tuesday in Connecticut. Uh, all across New England, there were power outages. The game that we had on deck got canceled. So hoping that everything gets restored and we're ready to rock and roll tomorrow. But that's besides the point. Um, we had some great games in the last couple days. I was in New Britain on Monday night for the first ever televised game on Nesson. It was awesome. It was a great experience. We even got to hear from Drew Tripp, the co-founder of ChangeUp. He shared some awesome stuff, our presenting sponsor, about the technology they have featured. So all was good and well. Broadcast went swimmingly. Uh, Owen, what did you see from the last couple of days of baseball? So again, I am in Lynn, but first I want to give a shout out to you, to Emma Carmen, to Donnie Porcaro, and to Leverett Ball. Unbelievable broadcast crew for that game. You've got that going for Saturday the 8th and next Saturday the 15th. Unbelievable job by you guys. Thank you, sir. It's much appreciated, and it's an effort that goes around the entire league circle, really a 10-year project running. On this episode, Dave Peterson talks about how it came to be and the effort that he's put into the schedule in general and coordinating this contract with Nesson. So it was a league-wide effort, but it was a ton of fun. Uh, it was crazy. It was the first time in a while I had felt legitimate nerves stepping up there on the mic for the first time, but it went smooth and really excited to run it back two more times. So thank you as always for the kind words. And uh, I love it. The Futures League is going mainstream, baby. Run cable TV. Absolutely. All right, now I'll talk about some baseball. So the Nashville Silvanets just defeated the North Shore Navigators 5-1 to one, thanks to a great pitching performance from Griffin Young, who's won the Pitcher of the Night Award, and from Nick Shumsky, who went two for three with an RBI and a run. A great win for the Silver Knights to keep pace with the Bravehearts, who won again today. Yeah, the Bravehearts put up 16. They beat the Starfires 16-8 and coincidentally improved their record to 16-8. So Worcester and Nashua keep rolling. A lot of movement at the bottom half of the standings. So everyone's still in it, and we're more than halfway through the season. How crazy is that to say? That's ridiculous. I can't believe we're already in August, and I can't believe that we've only got a couple weeks left. Yeah, but we're going to soak them in and enjoy each day as best as we can. And it's been amazing so far this summer. we got a handful of more episodes coming up on Back to the Future. So excited to bring you all of them. For today, we have Dave Peterson, the general manager of the Worcester Bravehearts. Worcester's really set the standard in the Futures League the last couple of years and has had a ton of on-field success. He'll talk about all that. And he's a great guy. Oh, and I know that he was a chatterbox, and he's just a great figure that a ton of people around the Futures League circles know. So it was an awesome interview. Uh, we want to take that for you right now. So without further ado, here is our interview with Dave Peterson. At this time, we now welcome on a very special guest. It is the 2019 FCBL Executive of the Year, Dave Peterson, the general manager of the defending FCBL champions and current first place Worcester Bravehearts. Dave, welcome on. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Excellent. Thanks for having me on. And it's an off day for us right now. So uh, I got some extra time. I was just going to be napping. So I'm glad we got this on an off day. 
Well, thanks so much for joining us. It's great that it worked out for your schedule. And uh, from what it sounds like before you hopped on the interview, you had a great breakfast with some of the front office. Walk us through how your morning was so far. Well, part of the thing that we, uh, part of what we like to do with the Bravehearts is uh, go out and support some of our sponsors. And, and our, one of our season ticket holders owns a uh, diner uh, in Oxford, which is basically two towns south of Worcester. And, you know, every, I'd say maybe a handful of times every summer, we go over there and have breakfast because it's a challenge to finish the amount of food that they give you. So this morning, I brought two members of the front office and one of our uh, pitchers because I told him it was going to be an eating contest. And one of our pitchers, Chris Radovic from Clark University, who lives in Worcester and goes to a different breakfast spot. It was an opportunity for me to tell him that there's another breakfast spot right down the street. So they uh, fed us well with pancakes and waffles and eggs. Great time. That's tremendous. And we know that you guys are certainly no strangers to engaging the community and the local sponsors. We'll get into all that in a little bit. But first to start off, so the Worcester Bravehearts were named the Futures League Organization of the Year for the fourth time in the last six years in 2019. Talk about what it means to you to set the standard for that success across the Futures League. Well, a lot of what we do certainly focuses not only around the fans, but about the people that we're connecting with in the community, as you said. And it's interesting for us and for me personally to try and engage with people who might not even like baseball and that's really a way that we try to connect with people because I understand that there's probably a lot of kids in the Worcester community that don't know how the sport of baseball works but they see these guys in uniforms um, these big tall guys that are holding baseball bats and these kids will look at them and they say wow this this is like a famous celebrity here and so when they come to the ballpark and and learn about how baseball works they get autographs from the players I honestly can't tell who's more excited to get the autograph if it's the six-year-old kid or if it's the 20-year-old college student who is signing autographs for dozens of kids for the first time in his life so you know in, in terms of working with the community we have to be cognizant that there are people that don't like the sport of baseball. And we, even though we're playing baseball, we try to make the Bravehearts much more than that, which is why we do a reading program in the Worcester Public Schools that incentivizes kids to read books, to earn free hats and free tickets. We do a, a program with senior citizens in the community where we connect them with middle school students and they write letters to each other. And we sponsor a bunch of little league teams and give them jerseys. So that's just you know, some of the ways that we try to engage with the community and some of it doesn't even involve the sport of baseball. And there are some other events too that you didn't even touch on just because of the multitude of them. You guys also host some events like baseball and education games and teacher appreciation nights. A lot of those have helped contributed to an awesome environment that have attracted a ton of fans. Last year, you guys welcomed 72,000 in total and averaged over 2,500 per game. What do you think this team means to the city of Worcester as a whole? And how important is it for you to work with the community in terms of those group packages, or like you said, even the little league sponsorships to grow the name and the brand of the Bravehearts? Well, having lived in Worcester now uh, for 17 years, I know that Worcester is a blue collar town. 
and maybe, you know, people say this about their hometowns, you know, these, this is, it's a working class population, people who worked or their families grew up in manufacturing buildings. Worcester is well known for its manufacturing presence. It's a college town. There are six colleges in this town. I mean, I see, you know, you got your Boston College flag behind you. We got, we got Holy Cross, Assumption University, Worcester State University, Clark University, WPI, Becker College, you know, and, and the cool thing about the Futures League is that we're usually welcoming student athletes from each one of those schools. So we're very prideful of being part of Worcester, being a fabric of this community, knowing that in this city, you've got to earn it. And when I say it's a blue collar town, that just means that the people in this city, they earn it. They go to work, they do hard jobs every day of the year. This is not a resort town. This is not a beach town. This is a town that was built on the railroad and manufacturing. And so when these people were going to hand over their hard earned money um, and spend money to watch a baseball game, they want to get service and they want to get a product in return that they could be proud of. And so for us, that's how we try to position ourselves in this community. We try to be the Disney World of Worcester for these people who work hard every single day and then they come to the ballpark and they want a fun night out with their family where they can just kind of forget the previous work day, let their cares go away, and then sit down, watch some exciting baseball and funny on-field antics. The Disney World of baseball, that's a, that's a great analogy right there. And you work with John Creedon, one of the big figures in this league, who serves as the owner of both the Worcester Bravehearts and the Nashua Silver Knights. What is your relationship like with him, and how important is the owner-GM relationship in terms of leading a ball club? John and I are kind of a duo that will sit down and throw ideas against the wall and see what sticks. And then the fun happens when we actually decide to move forward with one of those ideas and begin the execution of it. He is a lot different than me um, in terms of his demeanor. He's a, he's a reserved guy. He's uh, quiet. Sometimes you could ask him to speak up, whereas you know me, that I'm like the idiot that dances around the ballpark and I'm yelling and I'm, you know, hugging people and shaking hands. Not this year, but in the past, you know. And, and so I'm the guy that dances in the ninth inning and gets people riled up. So I like, I like to think that we balance each other out, but John and I have several of the same qualities. We are very detail-oriented. We, we make sure that we put an emphasis on customer service. I like to think that we're very prepared, that we kind of think about every single thing that could go wrong at a baseball game when you've got 2,500 people in the seats or players on the field who could get injured and we try to be ahead of it every single time so that we're prepared. And so I really love working with him because we share a lot of those characteristics, but we also balance each other out. Whereas he's, like I said, the very, uh, he's a quiet and reserved guy. And I'm like this, this loud guy that tries to get everybody riled up. And, you know, it's really important and it's been very important for the progression of the Bravehearts to have a strong relationship with the owner. The owner and the GM should always be on the same page. We should have the same goals in mind. And, and not just like, what are we doing today? We need to 
think about, all right, what are we doing in six months? Because I always joke with him, you know, we might have three weeks left in the season and I'll say, the season's already over for me. I'm already into September and October and I'm thinking about how are we going to make money in the off season? And he'll say, the season's over for you? We're like in first place right now. I said, I know how it ends, but I won't tell you for three weeks. <laughs> All right, we'll keep those cards on the table and keep the fans waiting. We're super excited to see how it plays out. Now, Dave, a big part of being a Worcester Braveheart is playing games at Hanover Insurance Park. However, that's not the case this year. You guys have a temporary home at Doyle Field in Lemonster. I'm curious, what were those conversations like, and how did you ultimately land there in 2020? Well, to the point earlier about John and I always trying to be prepared and, and being one step ahead of everybody else, we knew that there was a possibility that we weren't going to play at the College of the Holy Cross in late April. And so that was probably a month before the season was supposed to begin anyway, which would have been like right after Memorial Day. And so we started looking at alternate fields probably the week of uh, April 23rd, 24th in there. And we, we took one day and drove around to a bunch of fields that had lights in the city of Worcester and surrounding towns. One of the fields that we did not visit on that day was Doyle Field in Lemonster. But I had known the mayor of Lemonster previously because his daughter interned for me in another position. So I told John, you know, what do you think about uh, Lemonster? Because if we can't make things work in Worcester, you know, Lemonster is 25 minutes north of here. They already have hosted a Futures League team. We're familiar with that facility. Um, what do you think? And he says, you know, that, that would be a great landing spot if they would have us. And so I put a call in to the mayor of Lemonster, Dean Mazzarella, in late April, as I said, right in the midst of this, at the height of the coronavirus pandemic. And he called me back within 24 hours. And I was impressed by that. Here's a man who was in the midst of trying to worry about public health, keeping his residents safe, and figuring out testing areas. And here's a guy that says, you know what? Baseball is important. Baseball could bring some smiles to people's faces up here. And that's why he called me back within 24 hours. He said, look, if you need us, we're here for you. And that was April. And when we finally got the word from the College of the Holy Cross in about mid-June that it wasn't going to work, I was able to go back to the mayor of Lemonster, put together a deal to play at Doyle Field, and it, we've loved it. They've been wonderful to us. Yeah, and we know as well as anybody how much baseball means and how great it is that this league is, gets to play baseball this year. It's fantastic. And let's turn to your team's roster for a minute. You guys brought back a lot of returning players, including Sean Babineau, Angelo Baez, Ben Rice. How did you manage to get all of those guys back to your squad this summer? Isn't that interesting how we're looking at this team right now and we're probably very close to 20 returning players, a lot of whom would have been graduated by now had we not been in the midst of a coronavirus pandemic. But since they had another year of eligibility, uh, they were able to say, okay, Tyler Patain was able to come back. Sean Babineau, you mentioned, was able to come back for another year of eligibility. I think it's about treating these people with respect when they're playing here so that they have a great time. We think that our players are really our best form of uh, recruitment for other players because they go back to their, their colleges in the fall and they tell their teammates, I had a nice time in Worcester. 
And if you have the opportunity and coach says that this is where he wants you to go, go to Worcester because we know that they'll take care of you with the host families, with the post-game meals, with the gear, the small things like putting their name on the back of their jersey, which I think goes pretty far with college students. So for us to get all those guys back was um, when we started losing players from the New York, New Jersey, Florida areas in May and June, Alex Dion was able to make some pretty quick phone calls to guys who had been on our team in the past and said, Hey, do you think that you want to play baseball this summer? And many of them said yes. And that's why you're looking at a team of returning players from last year. And even at this point, two years ago. Yeah. And one of those guys is Mariano Ricciardi, who was on episode 14 of this podcast. He unfortunately is out for the year as we learned last week. Talk about what he has meant to the Bravehearts over the last four years. Well, he's like the spark plug. And, you know, he started here in 2016 uh, when his brother was on the team with him. So it was pretty cool to have Dante and Mariano on the same team. And you've been able to see his growth and progression each year. Uh, He's raised his average every single year that he's been on this team. He's become more vocal. He's improved, really improved his infield defense quite a bit. Um, and now he was a clubhouse leader. And when he came back this year, that's how we were looking at him. You know, as you said, he's out for the year because of the injury, but he's still hanging around with the team. I saw him yesterday. He's always in a, a good mood. And when I said he was a spark plug, he was our leadoff hitter. He worked walks. He always, he was gut, he got on base. And he's the guy that would lead things off and, and start the rallies for the big hitters that would come up after him, including the Ben Rice's of the world. And, you know, even years ago, Zach Tower, I mean, of Auburn, who was a a huge home run hitter for us. And Mike Delacari, who was the league uh, MVP in uh, 2018. So he's the guy that would set the table for them. Before we get back to our interview with Dave Peterson, once again, we wanted to give a big shout out and thanks to Change Up, one of the FCBL's cornerstone sponsors this season. As you may have learned during our recent Nesson broadcast, how cool was that, by the way? ChangeUp is a cutting-edge, player-centric pitch and performance management application. By comprehensively and accurately tracking pitch activity and capturing critical in-game performance data, ChangeUp helps baseball coaches protect their pitchers from overuse and helps players reach their full potential safely. We're a little over halfway through the 2020 season, and FCBL teams are already reaping the benefits of the changeup application, including the ability to keep college coaches informed on what and how their pitchers are doing here in the FCBL. Coaches and parents at all levels, Little League, AAU, high school, and the collegiate level, take notice. Changeup is the clear choice to ensure your pitchers aren't being thrown too much or too often and are getting proper rest. In addition, ChangeUp's analytics function helps coaches and players understand each pitcher's current performance thresholds and helps inform training protocols to get your players to the next level. The Futures League is bringing you tomorrow's baseball superstars today. ChangeUp is helping make sure those superstars travel safely and as far as possible on their personal baseball journeys. Are you ready to join the ChangeUp revolution? For more information, visit ChangeUp's website, www.changeup.io. That's www.change-up.io. Change up. Every pitch counts. We now return to our interview with Dave Peterson. And talking about the league in terms of logistics more so as a whole, 
You had a big part in creating the schedule for the league this summer. What goes into that schedule creation, especially in a year like this one, where at one point we weren't sure if Pittsfield was going to play or not, so you had to account for a six-team schedule versus a seven-team schedule. On top of having to account for teams traveling and having to limit that geographically and dealing with a lot of COVID restrictions. <laughs> How long do we have? As long <laughs> as you want to explain. <laughs> um, you know, the interesting thing about doing the schedule is that it's a challenge and I look forward to it every year. Um, I really love the analytics of looking at how to pair up teams like how do you get Pittsfield to Brockton and then the next day send Pittsfield to North Shore, which you probably shouldn't do driving across the state like that. So the, the, the analytics of it, quite honestly, when you boil it down, it is a process that is not very reliant on a computer. It is very old fashioned. And so when I make a schedule and I sit down with, uh, Joe Palucci and other general managers and owners, I write everything out. And the reason I write it out is because I need to double check that there's four, four matchups between Brockton and Pittsfield, for example. And when we place it on the schedule, we physically cross them out so that I know that I have placed it. And I have someone else double checking my work at that same time because if I screw something up, I've got another copy to look at. So it's a long process. It's a fun process. In the Futures League, it is not as difficult maybe as the NECBL uh, where you've got teams from Newport, Rhode Island traveling all the way up to Maine and you're talking about five or six hour bus trips, whereas really the longest trip in our league is probably, you know, two hours and 45 minutes. So people look at that and say, wow, it's a long bus trip. But then you look at these other leagues, especially out in the Midwest and North Woods League, and these guys are driving 10 hours to play baseball. So it is a challenging process, but it's something I look forward to every year. And this year, what happened was we just made four different schedules. And there was a six-team schedule, seven-team schedule, one that started in July, one that started in June, and then one that started in Nashua and New Britain, which is where we finally landed because teams in Massachusetts couldn't host baseball games when we started the season. So it finally worked. Yeah, I've always been fascinated by schedule adjustments in both leagues like this and the major leagues. How was the adjustment from going to 56 games to 39 games? Was there like math involved and like secret equations or was it more of just like adjusting travel and with the COVID restrictions and stuff like that? Well, you really have to figure out what are your priorities when you're making a schedule. Do you want a balanced schedule or do you want to lessen travel? And, you know, the great thing about this league is that all the owners agreed that even though, you know, you're talking about a 39-game schedule, which means you're going to have an odd number of home games versus away games. But the owners understood that we're in the midst of a pandemic and that they're not going to complain about things like, Nashua and New Britain having extra home games because really the priority this year was to limit travel as much as possible. And that's why when you put together a 39 game schedule, you can start having teams like North Shore, which is in Lynn, uh, play more frequently against Nashua and Brockton rather than traveling down to New Britain. 
And then with regards to Westfield, New Britain, playing more against Worcester. So you're able to do an unbalanced schedule that way, and you try to take everybody's requests into account. So, you know, I know that Westfield likes to do um, double headers on Sundays so that actually they don't have to host a game on a Wednesday night or Tuesday night. So we're able to put that stuff together. And it was just a real collaborative effort. Um, we basically trimmed a bunch of home games and really focused on the geographic rivalries, which is why you see Nashua playing North Shore so many times this year, because it makes sense for travel. This season, our games will be featured on Nessun, which is the first television network contract in league history. When we're recording this, the first telecast has happened. It was Westfield versus New Britain last night. How were those talks with Nessun, and how did you guys end up getting these games on Nessun, and how significant is it? Uh, well, in a year where we have trouble welcoming people to actual ballparks, um, I really applaud Joe Paolucci for putting emphasis on trying to get the league at a point where it can be mass consumed by people who have been craving live sports for four or five months now. And so those discussions started with Joe probably in mid-May or so, but they really did not take off until late June. And by the time it was done, the, like the real discussions followed by, Hey, we're going to do this was, real quick, a lot quicker than I had ever expected. And it's a wonderful thing for the league. It raises the profile of this league. I think that, again, Joe and everyone in the league office, has, you guys have been doing an incredible job raising the profile of this league, especially with the mandatory video now that each team is required to run with our, our friends at Blue Frame Technology because that has not been a requirement in the past. And if you are struggling with things like making revenue on ticket sales, you have got to find another way that these teams can make money. And the fact that we were able to do that deal so that people can subscribe, college coaches, parents and family members from across the country, teammates of these kids can subscribe. That's a great revenue stream for the league, but it's also a great highlight reel for these players who you know will, at the end of the season, go back to their schools and put together highlight reels so that they can be seen by scouts. And it's, it's in a wonderful way that the Futures League is finally getting uh, some regional media attention. Yeah, we're so excited for that partnership. Once again, thank you for all your hard work. And it's been incredible turning on Nesson, getting a chance to see some of those games. I'm sure you thought your job was going to be done schedule-wise once the six-team schedule was finalized, but it required a little bit of reshuffling to get all six teams on air. I'm sure also figuring out logistics-wise which ballparks could support a broadcast team and production truck. Was that pretty seamless for you, giving all the effort you had to put in prior to the season? Again, this comes back to the owners that are all on board. We're all on the same page. They knew that being on Nesson was really the goal compared to uh, having an even number of Saturday home games in Nashua, for example. So we made a few small changes. We were able to get a game in Lynn, give them an extra Saturday in exchange for the North Shore Navigators going to Nashua on a day that they were supposed to have a home game so that they can get some TV exposure. None of this could have happened if the owners of these teams didn't have the same ideals in mind. And the same ideals are 
constantly growing this league, celebrating the 10th season of it, and getting to a point where we can finally overtake the NECBL in the eyes of college coaches, and we're getting there. And that's one of my goals on a league level. Right now, coaches are, college coaches look at the Cape Cod League as number one, which it should be, and the NECBL as number two. And so our players often will go through the Futures League, and then they will graduate to the NECBL. I believe, I firmly believe, that this league can be equal to or above the NECBL within the next five years. Well, we're certainly on the right path, and it's been, once again, incredible to tune in, see a super professional telecast on Nesson with all the bells and whistles. And we got two more on Saturday, August 8th, and Saturday, August 15th. Your Bravehearts are going to be featured this upcoming Saturday. You mentioned earlier you guys have a watch party in Worcester, so lots of exciting stuff happening. So you've been involved in the Worcester baseball scene for quite some time now. You started in 2005 as the vice president of sales and marketing when the team was known as the Worcester Tornadoes. Talk about your start in the Worcester baseball scene and what kind of a transformation you've seen over the last decade and a half. Well, yeah, I, was, I started as a part-time employee with the Worcester Tornadoes. I was the on-field MC. And I said earlier that I'm kind of the crazy guy that dances around in the stands and gets the crowd riled up. I kind of branded myself as one of these game show hosts from the 1970s because uh, I put on a tacky jacket and I dance. One of the things that I've always lived my life by is the rule that you can never be afraid to laugh at yourself. And it seems like everyone takes themselves too seriously nowadays. And so my way of developing connections with people is to make fun of myself and to, you know, dance around. Like people think I'm the mascot for the team and the kids think that I'm the mascot. And when I started with the Worcester Tornadoes, I was the on-field MC, but I was also working a full-time job in radio, which is a very... I, sh I guess I'll say cutthroat industry. It's really uh, competitive. I was doing radio sales in the city of Worcester. So my job was basically to sell commercials. And I had always wanted to be on-air talent, much like you guys. I went to school for that at Syracuse University. I got my first job in radio as a promotions director. But I also learned quickly that I, I could make more money doing sales and using my personality to develop relationships within the city of Worcester. So while I was working part-time for the Tornadoes, I was working full-time in radio. I talked with the general manager there in 2007 and said, you see all these signs on the outfield here, all your sponsors, I can do that. I do that as my day job on the radio station. I love coming here at night and representing the team. So that's how I got my first full-time job in baseball. He hired me as the vice president of sales and marketing to do corporate sales for the Tornadoes. And when baseball left in 2012 here in the city, it came back in the next year. I was called in 2013 by John Creedon, and he said, we need a general manager for this summer collegiate team that I'm going to start. And I didn't know a lot about that model because the Tornadoes were independent professional. But I fell in love with the model. He hired me in October of 2013 been here since day one we went through the entire process of naming the team getting a mascot developing all the community programs and um i wouldn't trade it for anything it's it's been a wonderful ride and there's still so much more that we need to accomplish in this city 
you just touched on it. You're very involved with the, and visible to the fans. You have a signature rally dance with fans, and you wear that nice red plaid jacket that we see so often during games. How important is that for you to interact with the fans and show them how committed and involved you are in every capacity? Well, I think that part of the fun of my job is the fact that I get to talk with hundreds of people every night. And I say talk to them, but really it's listen to them. Um, I feel that all of our fans have a story and each one of them comes to the ballpark to tell you about their family. They maybe want to tell you about the, maybe it's a host family that's telling you about the baseball player that's staying at his or her house. They want to tell you about their kids. They want to tell you about little league. They want to tell you about being a coach. They want to tell you about their church, their job. And my job is really to listen. And when I say that we're the Disney world of Worcester, it just means that my job is to make sure that these fans come into the ballpark and leave with a smile on their face at the end of the night. Whatever it is, it made them happy. It could have been that the kids get to run across the outfield in the sixth inning. There's a lot of fans that have my cell phone number, and probably too many, quite honestly. And so, you know, this year particularly, it's great because I have one fan that has subscribed to the Blue Frame uh, broadcast and constantly checks with me to tell me, ask me what time is the broadcast, how do I get it to work on my computer, and you know, I'll stop what I'm doing and I'll show them how to do it. But I give my cell phone number to probably far too many season ticket holders and fans. But that's just the way that I check in with them because I get to know their families. I get to know if they're going through some tough times, maybe if they've been sick or if somebody in their family has been sick. It, it's, it means something that the Bravehearts are checking in with them, that they're sending gifts for their kid's birthday party, or they're visiting them if they're sick in the hospital. And that's kind of how I feel that this baseball team fits into the community. It's, it's like I said, it's much more than baseball. We, I hire people to do the baseball aspect of it because I do not build the roster. I am not a scout. My job is to put people in the seats, except in 2020, uh, <laughs> but if you surround yourself with good people, then you're going to run a successful business. And I like to think to this point that the Bravehearts have been pretty successful and we've built on it every year. Yeah, that success has certainly been right out in the open for you guys. You talk about putting smiles on faces. Let's talk about a game in particular last year. It was July 26. You guys were playing Nashua. It was 17-10 in the eighth, and Worcester makes a six-run rally to make it 17-16, and a lot of people credit that rally to you. You put on the red plaid jacket, you went to the stands, and you danced to the song Tequila the entire inning. Worcester scores those six runs. What was that experience like? And are you a believer in the power of the blazer and the power of tequila, the song? <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel that uh, the blazer does have some magical powers. Um, I think that when you are a 19 or 20 year old college student and you are pitching in front of that night, 4,500 people, there's kind of this moment where you look up and say, Oh my God, how did I get here? And then there's the PA system. And then there's the fans that start chanting. And then you've got this guy, me that comes out and starts dancing in the stands to try and distract the opposing player. I just feel like, this is a great opportunity for college students to 
feel what it is like to play professional baseball because many of these kids come in here and the most number of people they've ever played in front of in their lives is maybe one or 200 people. And you come in, you're playing in a stadium with 4,500 people. And that is something that just grounds you, you know, and some people can do it and some people can't. Now, I mean, for me, I just feel like summer collegiate baseball is somewhat whimsical. Uh, I said earlier, I don't take myself too seriously. And I think that a lot of people on our, our, on our squad, we don't take ourselves too seriously. So the fact that I put on a jacket down by seven runs in the eighth inning, when we have our largest crowd in the history of the ballpark, they want to see a real baseball game, not a 17 to 10 football game. All right. They want to see a baseball game. And so I started doing the dance and I apparently, uh, it distracted the Nashville Silver Knights to the point that they started walking people, they started hitting batters, they started throwing wild pitches, and then our hitters got hot and they scored six runs. We couldn't quite get it across the finish line, but we made it a baseball game. We made it fun and memorable for everybody. And then that, that, that dance kind of stuck, the tequila dance. <laughs> Yeah, it was certainly the rally cry when I was there earlier this season. And the players we've had on the podcast have said that Worcester is their favorite opposing ballpark. Most of them have said that. So it depends on the person, as you said. Yeah, it's loud, too. That ballpark gets loud. It is all made out of aluminum, so it's not concrete like many of the other ballparks in our league. So it's complete aluminum, which means that when when fans are banging their feet, it echoes throughout that ballpark. It is a fun place to play, and you're right on top of the action, too. You mentioned earlier you guys have the same colors as the Seahawks. There's also a similar stadium design as CenturyLink, where you're trying to get the acoustics and really cater it to helping boost that adrenaline and that volume in the stands. Uh, actually, I think that the crowds are louder in Nashua. And it's been like that even before the Creed and family owned it I, because they've got the cowbells and they're, they've always been really incredible baseball fans. I think Worcester has some great baseball fans, but they're mostly in Worcester a fan of Worcester. All right. You know, like I said earlier that they might not know a whole bunch about baseball, but they want to go there. They want to support their city and they want to make sure that they do whatever they can to push our team to victory. And if that means making noise, you know, sometimes it does help us. I, I say that, you know, sometimes there are dead nights in the stadium where the crowd needs to be electrified and the staff does it. And sometimes the players are the ones that are performing so well and the staff is having an off night and the players carry us. And that's kind of how the Bravehearts look at it every, every night. Either the staff is carrying the players or the players are carrying the staff. And the nights that are electric are the ones where everybody's on the top of their game. Yeah, you mentioned that the Nashua fans, those Worcester-Nashua matchups, the Creedon Bowl, as some call it, are quite intense. And yeah, and i become friendly with many of those Nashua fans too. And I love going up there and visiting uh, because they like to give me a hard time and I like to laugh and – and I give them a hard time. But at the end of the day, uh, you were all enjoying summer collegiate baseball and bringing a great product to wonderful communities, especially the community of Nashville, New Hampshire, which has had that ballpark there for, uh, you know, 60 to 70 years now. I mean, probably more than that. Yeah, it's an incredible baseball scene for sure. 
And let's shift to the future for a second. In 2021, there will be a new entrant to the Worcester baseball scene as the Paw Sox, the AAA affiliate to the Red Sox, will rebrand as the Worcester Woo Sox and move into the city full-time. And in August of 2018, you made a pretty impassioned speech regarding baseball in Worcester and what the Bravehearts have done for the city. Can you summarize what you said during that speech and your opinion regarding the Paw Sox move to Worcester? Yeah, so I that was a, a moment where I got in front of the city council in August of 2018, and I basically said that there is a baseball team here already. It's the Worcester Bravehearts. It's a team that has been given a key to the city. It's a team that has been praised for the work that we are doing in the community, and I just felt like I was talking not to the Red Sox organization. I was talking to the city leaders because we do see thousands of fans in the ballpark all summer long. One of the groups of people that I hadn't seen at the ballpark were the city leaders and, and particularly the city council. And so my, my whole reason for being at that city council meeting was so that they didn't forget us because I know that the Woo Sox coming to Worcester is a big deal for the city. It's an economic boon, hopefully, that when this ballpark gets built, it's going to revitalize a neighborhood. It's going to bring restaurants, bars, and retail shops, and housing and office space to an area that was a parking lot. So it means a lot to the city if it's done correctly. And the other aspect of this is that the Bravehearts have never cost the city of Worcester any public money since we've been in business. All the money that was invested in that stadium was done on a private level back when it was built in 2005. And the Cretans have done everything here with the help of the College of the Holy Cross on their own. So we've never really asked for any money from the city. And when I went to that city council meeting, I told them that because I am a voter in the city of Worcester. And, and as I said earlier, I'm, I'm pretty loud and opinionated. And I just didn't want our city leadership to forget about the fact that there is a wonderful option for summer baseball in the city. And I do believe that the Woo Sox and the Bravehearts can coexist. Some of this is going to be planning. Some of it is going to be making sure that the Red Sox are not playing a home game the same night as the Bravehearts are playing. So I might have to talk to the schedule maker about that in 2021. But I also think that they're different products. I don't believe that you're going to see Larry Lucchino in a tacky jacket dancing to the tequila song behind home plate. It's just not going to happen. And nor do I think that any member of that front office will do it. And the challenge is, for us, how do we compete with a prestigious brand? The challenge for them is, how do we keep up with this small summer collegiate baseball team that is going to be taking fans from us. That is what they're talking about in their offices right now. I guarantee it. What we're talking about in our offices is how do we differentiate our product from a very successful major league brand and how do we sell tickets? How do we sell birthday parties? How do we do summer camps? How do we bring out groups? So it's going to be fun. The bottom line is competition is good for the market. If a new grocery store opens up in your hometown, you might go and try it out. But guess what? The grocery store that you are currently shopping at is going to change the way that they do service. And they're, they're going to think twice about their pricing to make sure that they don't lose you as a customer. So competition is good for the market. 
the Bravehearts and the Woo Sox can coexist, and it's going to drive the price down for everybody to enjoy baseball. That's a very interesting point, and thank you for sharing your opinion on that once again. Uh, talking about the city, for one final question before we move on to our final segment, you were named to the Worcester Business Journal's 40 under 40 list in 2011, and the Bravehearts, as well as the Worcester Railers, the local hockey team, co-hosted the inaugural Worcester Sports Management Summit in January of 2019. It was an event to provide college students and recent grads at Worcester State an opportunity to hear from professionals and a panel of people. What does it mean to you to pay it forward to local students who are aspiring business professionals? Uh, well, I've talked a lot about what our role is in the community for fans. Uh, I think that what our role is in the community for aspiring sport management students is we are a wonderful stepping stone for people to uh, move up to bigger and better things. I often say bigger and better things. It's an overused term. You know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe the Bravehearts is the best that it can be, you know, because we're dancing in the stands. We're having fun. We're going to breakfast as a team on a, on a Tuesday morning in August. Uh, we're watching the Nesson game at a local restaurant. We get together. But I also feel like the Bravehearts do not have a large staff. And so my role here is to train the future of sport management and make sure that these students that are coming through our program have the skills that they need to get a job in the industry. And to this point, I believe that we've done a, a fairly good job at that. And so uh, the people who've come through our program now are working at Mass Golf. They're working at the Washington Redskins. We've had a guy that's gone on to work with the Baltimore Orioles and New England Revolution. There's a guy that worked here that is now the head equipment manager for the University of Louisville basketball team. And these, these people come through here and they also determine if sports is a career for them because some of them say, this is fun, but I can't do this for a living. And they've gone on to jobs in staffing and engineering and they're working and ha they have great jobs, but they always come back and hopefully they say that the Bravehearts taught them something along the way so that it helped them get a job in the industry. And that's why we do that sport management summit. It's for college students all over new England to come and meet people in the industry. And a lot of these people I used to work with, whether it was with the tornadoes or my years with the Bravehearts. Um, and now I guess the most recent example is to see someone like Donnie Porcaro, who's been working in our press box now for four years. And he's the, announcer uh play-by-play -play announcer for these games on Nesson and and so I hope that he goes on to bigger and better things and that you guys do the same because you're you're talented people thank you we appreciate that for sure uh so I go to UMass I also study sport management as well as sport journalism what is your biggest piece of advice for sport management majors who are either graduating or are studying sport management well, don't be afraid to introduce yourself to people. And even if it's a person who you don't think can help you out, like somebody who's not working in sports, you never know who that person knows. And I think a lot of sport management people nowadays are, are putting all their eggs in one basket, which is, okay, you want to play-by-play -play announcer? That's great. You're, you're very good at it. 
but the number of jobs that are out there that are specific to being a play-by-play announcer are few and far between. And I don't even know how the coronavirus pandemic is going to affect what happens to the job market in 2021. But I know that anyone that wants to get a job in sports is going to have to know a handful of skills. And so if you want to be a play-by-play announcer, you ought to know a little bit about graphic design. You ought to know a little bit about video. You guys, you know that. You're doing it right now. You ought to know a little bit about podcasting. You ought to know how to write. Um, the number of college students that come through here and don't know how to write is, it boggles my mind. It's the unfortunate thing that, you know, we need to be able to write clear press releases now and clear stories for websites and clear email newsletters to fans. And if, if we're going to rely on texting people and using abbreviations and not actually having a conversation where you can hear somebody's feelings, you're really not connected to that person. So when I say go introduce yourself to people, it means have a real conversation, person to person, because texting someone, you have no idea the personality behind that text and what is going through that person's mind. You really need to get yourself out there and meet people, which I believe is becoming a lost art. Yeah, that's some great advice, especially in times like this where it seems like texting and is the answer, but you again, you cannot see human emotion behind a behind a screen you just can't yeah i well i mean yeah you probably can't see it behind a mask either but at least you know that we're all in it together right (laughs) it's all in the eyes with the mask that's right and then lastly before we move on to our final segment how about a quick message to bravehearts fans as we continue on to the season and get toward the end of the season well, it has been a different season, um, and it has been a struggle to get the league up and running, um, but anyone that has taken that trip up to Doyle Field to be there, we had 335 people there on opening night. It was wonderful to see that because our fans travel very well. I was just talking with a former staff member of the Wachusett Dirt Dogs last night who um, used to play at Doyle Field and he said, you know, these these crowds are bigger than what the Wachusett Dirt Dogs used to draw. And so I truly appreciate all those Worcester people who are making the trip up to Lemonster to support the team. And we're performing well now, but we also realize that there are we still have to focus on our safety because um the I do not want the Futures League to look like Major League Baseball looks right now. And Major League Baseball does not look very good, if you were to ask me. Um, There's just a bunch of irresponsible people who aren't taking it seriously, going out at night, going to a casino. And um, we've already seen baseball series get canceled and baseball teams have eight to 10 players test positive. So the number one thing that we have to do is focus on the day-to-day safety precautions to make sure that all of our team members are safe And then let's play some good baseball and see if we might be able to make the playoffs this year. And it's a tough year to make the playoffs because it's only two teams that are going, but you can guarantee that we're going to focus on those two things. Well, you guys have certainly excelled so far this season. You're on the right path, some might say. And also to your point, it's crazy thinking that the major leagues are adopting double headers where the games are seven innings, something that we feature here in the futures league, but I digress, whatever they got to do to try to fit it in and hope that they don't cancel. 
So Dave, this has been awesome so far. We're going to move on to our final segment. It's called Quick Hits, presented by Zephyr, the official on-field hat of the Futures League. Zephyr, high quality and innovative design since 1993. So we got a couple more questions for our audience to help to get to know you a little bit better if they don't already. Is that cool with you? Sounds good. Perfect. Favorite Bravehearts player from your tenure with the team? Uh, Evan Hirschbaum. Can you give a quick reason for that? Evan Hirschbaum is, uh, uh, he plays professionally now. He was signed midseason in 2015. And, um, you know, like Evan is just always in it. Like he's a character. And the first game he played with us, he came in as a pinch hitter in the ninth inning and he hit a game winning double. And he wears this crusty, this crusty wristband, uh, that he has never taken off in his entire baseball career. And it is the grossest thing that I've ever seen. And it stinks. And the guy just exudes happiness when he's at the ballpark. He just wants to be there. He didn't play every game. He played very few games, but he brought it every single day. He came to our uh, ballpark. He's kind of like Doug Mirabelli. If I were to make a, I, I don't know if you remember Doug Mirabelli, the catcher that used to catch Tim Wakefield for the Red Sox. He's very much like Doug Mirabelli, like no batting gloves. Like this guy just wants to be dirty, wants to be the loudest guy on the bench, and he just loves showing up to the ballpark. Certainly a figure that any team could use in their locker room to improve chemistry and just put a smile on your face when some of the days get long in the middle of the summer. Mm-hmm. Favorite ballpark you've ever attended at any level? Um, I was overwhelmed when I went to Quebec City, a city that is not known for baseball, but is known for hockey. And when the Worcester Tornadoes played the Quebec Capitals in the 2009 Championship Series, that ballpark was rocking. It was wooden, much like Wakona Park in Pittsfield. And the people were, much like a hockey crowd, on their feet, chanting in unison. And the place was 4,000 people. Eric Gagne was on the mound. It was after his Major League Baseball career was over. Even on the radio, it sounded like I was in Yankee Stadium listening to the game. It was an incredible baseball experience, and I will never forget it. That's incredible. Certainly not the direction I expected you to take that, but yeah. just picture <laughs> my head sounded awesome. People chanting in unison, like jumping around, and like you're sitting on benches that look like church pews. And you're just taking it all in, like on every pitch, they were on the edge of their seats. It was incredible. Now, on the flip side, baseball stadium or in general, a sporting event on your bucket list that you haven't been to yet, but that's at the top of that. I want to go there before I die. Um, love to play Pebble Beach and take my dad there. Um, and in terms of watching it, maybe go to the Masters. Dave, that's awesome. Sound like a big golf guy yourself. And in case if you guys haven't heard, we're going to have the first ever Futures League golf tournament. Money's going to a great cause. Good chance to catch up with some of your favorite executives, people around the league office. Owen and I will probably be there if Owen's not busy at UMass doing his thing. It's in October. So just wanted to give that a quick shout out. We have that going on in the fall. Um, so now if you were a player in today's game, what would your walk-up music be? Ah, that is a good one because I love so much music. I have a jukebox in my office with a hundred CDs. Um, 
and I used to be a hip hop DJ and you're not, you'll never believe it. But, um, my walk up music would probably be, um, Marshall Tucker band, uh, which is like that Southern rock, very much like, uh, you know, Leonard Skinner and my favorite song of all time from them is heard it in a love song. And it's just this happy song about finding the love of your life. That's but it's not probably not like a great walk-up song because like I don't know if it pumps up the crowd, but it has a piano in it, it has a flute, and it is a hard southern rock song. So I love it. I can just picture it like runners on second and third, bottom eight down a run, the piano, the kind of soft tunes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Favorite big league team? Oh, Red Sox. Good answer. Favorite professional player, whether it's current or historical? Uh, Marty Barrett, second baseman of the 1986 Boston Red Sox, the team that Rich Gedman also played for. That was like the first team that I remember following. They lost to the Mets in the World Series, but Marty Barrett was the first player I ever got an autograph from. And he was not known for hitting home runs, but the first baseball game I went to, he hit a home run over the Green Monster. There you go. That's right there. That's the favorite player. That's automatic. Mm-hmm. Yep. And most people probably know this answer already, but a baseball nickname. Well, people call me Peterman. Based on the character from Seinfeld. So if there's any Seinfeld fans out there, I'm Peterman, like Jay Peterman. And that was a college nickname actually because they spelled my name wrong on my dorm room door so you know if you're living in a college dorm room sometimes you just leave the door open and people walking down the hall yell hey how you doing hey dave but my name on the on the wall was peterman so it was the height of seinfeld and people would just be like peterman peterman and now i drive down main street in worcester and i've got people yelling peterman i've got police officers that are like i've had a police officer giving a speeding ticket and i drive by and i was like waving at the cops saying hey officer how are you he goes he stops writing the ticket he turns around he goes hey peterman it was like one of the most hysterical things i've ever seen i'm not gonna lie i thought your last name was peterman for the first month we we knew each other well there you go are you superstitious at all? Somewhat. Somewhat. Are any you're willing to reveal? Well, just the old stuff that my mother always told me because I'm partly Irish. So, like, I can't have a bird in the house. I can't even have a picture of a bird in the house. That's an old Irish uh, tale that it brings you bad luck. You know, you don't walk underneath uh, a ladder. Uh, and I'm using ladders quite a bit at Doyle Field, trying to rig things up every single day so I don't walk underneath them. You know, just, uh, I don't have a superstition every day that I come to work, but I kind of go through the same process every day when I come to work. I, you know, the same route I take to work every day and then when I come into my office, so. Hmm. Yeah, routine has certainly been a big part of the answers we've gotten for that question, so that makes... Perfect sense. Yep. And then how about your favorite Bravehearts championship run as you've got a few to, few to choose from? Um, you know, I loved the 2015 team 
the 2014 team is the, that's the ring I wear the most because that was the first time we ever did it. And it was a collection of people I didn't even know from schools I had never even heard of. And it was incredible the way that we won that championship. But that team was really in first place from the beginning of the season right to the end. The 2015 team was not. We won the first two games of the year in 2015, and then we lost 10 games in a row. And so we were mired in last place. And people were down on themselves. And, you know, we ended up signing two new players in July, Ian Strom from Hopedale and Willie Allen from Dorchester. And these two local guys came in, outfielders, and they created what's called the no-fly zone, where they were making diving catches one after another in the outfield. It was incredible to see. And all of a sudden, we started winning some games. We just barely snuck into the playoffs that year as the sixth seed. And we won elimination games in Brockton and then on Martha's Vineyard and then in Bristol, Connecticut. And we took the championship as a sixth seed and we had a less than 500 record when everything was said and done that year. I couldn't believe it happened. That's incredible. You got to love the underdog story. Yep. And then when allowed, obviously not this year, but bubblegum or sunflower seeds at the ballpark. Oh, I'd probably take gum. <laughs> Those sunflower seeds get stuck in my teeth. <laughs> yeah, they get tough if you don't have floss. Mm-hmm. And then any flavor or brand of gum in particular that you particularly enjoy? I like the uh, Major League Chew where you just grab the handful. Um, but also, um, do they still sell Hubba Bubba? Remember that? It like had the, the juice in the middle of it. It was uh, like this giant cube of, of gum. It was incredible. Yeah, Hubba Bubba's still rocking out there. 100%. Yeah, that's it. And then finally, how about a favorite all-time baseball memory? You've got plenty to choose from. Oh, this is going to be tough. <laughs> um, I already told you about the trip to Quebec. So um, that would have been a valid a- answer if you want to still roll with it. Uh, well, we didn't win. We didn't win that one. I- I'll tell you. All right. If I had to give you the best game that I've ever seen in person – Again, 2015 that I mentioned was really, you know, the, it was probably my favorite championship team. Um, at Martha's Vineyard, it was an elimination game, and it went 14 innings, and I've seen things in that game that I had never seen before. They, the Martha's Vineyard pitcher tried to intentionally walk Zach Tower, and he swung at the pitch, which was off the plate, but just barely, and he launched – not a home run, but he launched a fly ball left field that was deep enough to be a stat fly to score a run. I saw catcher's interference in that game. I saw bases loaded, nobody out jam in the 14th or the, the 13th inning, and local guy Charlie Butler went 2-0 and on the hitter. And our manager at the time, Justin Edwards, just looks at him and goes, hey, you good? <laughs> and he goes, I'm good. And he actually got out of the inning. And the rest is history. We ended up winning that game after being, you know, two pitches away from walking in the winning run. And uh, we went on to win the championship that year. I got home at 4.25 a.m. after a 14-inning game and waiting for the boat to take the team back to the mainland and then come back to the vineyard to get me and the rest of the fans and staff 
Then you get on a bus and drive two hours back to Worcester. It was like 4.25 a.m. that I got home. Probably the best fishing boat you'll ever wait for coming back. Incredible. One of four championships, just one moment in a history and a long tenure of success for the Bravehearts. Dave Peterson, thank you so much for joining us today. Best of luck with everything. We'll see you on the diamond real soon. Hey, thanks again. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much for the kind words. We certainly will do so. This has been episode 21 of Back to the Futures, the official podcast of the Futures Collegiate Baseball League. We have new episodes coming out every Monday and Thursday. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast. We're streaming on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see everyone soon. We'll be right back.